This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. is Michael Helsinger, and if this is your first time tuning into Murky Waters, this podcast is about interviewing shark scientists to learn about these jawsome predators. On today's episode, we have a special guest, Riley Elliott, a Kiwi shark scientist and waterman who freedives with sharks and tags blue sharks for his research. We talk about how he freedives safely with these animals particularly the Marco shark, and his three golden rules, including his scariest underwater encounter. We also discuss the recent listing of Marco sharks on CITES, and this is the Convention for International Trade of Endangered Species, and what this means, as well as some other cool conservation projects he is a part of. Riley has written a book, he's given a TED talk, and is currently polishing off a PhD at the University of Auckland. He is a big force for shark conservation, playing a role in stopping the blue shark fin trade here in New Zealand. This is a long episode, people, the longest yet, but for good reason. So without further ado, let's sink our teeth into this interview with Riley. Kia ora, Riley. Could you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners what inspired you to study sharks? Yeah, g'day. Well, my name's Riley Elliott. I'm a shark biologist from New Zealand, but um, I've been privileged to be able to work all over the world with sharks. And I don't know, it might sound repeated, but um, fear is what got me into sharks. I was a surfer that was scared of them. <laughs> and um, as we all know, our, our education for most of us was Jaws. But unlike most scenarios of people... I didn't want to accept that naivety and uh, having a, a tertiary background and, and being challenged through academic parents all my life to get the facts from the source, I wanted to go to the sharks and figure out what they actually were. You know, that's become the, the kind of moral of my story is, is, is go to the source, get the fact, because otherwise we're all just walking around blindly. And how did you go to the source, Riley? How did you get the facts? Well, I believe you did a similar thing, didn't you? I went to Ocean's Research in South Africa. Yeah. Am I right in saying you in there? Yeah, yeah absolutely, <laughs> man. That's what exactly what inspired me because I saw uh, so many white sharks and did some incredible field work, and after that I was hooked, and that's all I uh, wanted to do. Dude, totally. Well, I mean, my story, I was I was ironically studying dolphins um, <laughs> for my undergrad yeah, in Otago yeah. um, and, and Doubtful Sound, though, which if you've ever been there is a pretty ominous, scary you don't really belong there as a human because it's kind of just wild, raw nature. Yeah. And it's very deep because it's a fjord. And, and every time we were diving, you just look down to this abyss and you'd just be like, man, there's some critters down there that could probably see me and I can't see them. And one of these days, I'm sure one's just going to get me. <laughs> and one day, one came up full speed out of the, out of the water. I tell this to school kids all the way to corporates where basically – you know, I shout myself, it was a shark. It's only one thing that moves like that. And um, yeah. it was a shark, but it was it was only one foot long and it was a tiny little school shark. And, <laughs> and, um, and the reaction that I had, you know, really blew me away in the sense of, like, how naive can we be, man? I was trying to be a scientist and, you know, I shout myself over something. I had no idea what it was. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know whether it's irony or luck or whatever, but I got back to university, went to the office and on the wall was a flyer to go to South Africa to go to Oceans Research and mm-hmm. do an internship for six weeks. And, you know, I've put a lot of people onto that program because it's been running for, God, more than 10 years now. I was the very first internship cycle there. Yep. And it was rough and it was raw, but we basically got to play with great whites every single day. And I'm sure, as you said earlier, the first time you see one in the flesh, it's like seeing this phantom ghost. Mm-hmm. And what's so surprising to you is you're not shocked or you're not fearful you're just staggered in awe 
Mm. And you just sit there and go, holy shit, that's real. Like, wow. Ryder, you're currently studying a PhD, if I'm right, in Auckland. Can you yep. tell us a bit about your PhD? Yeah. Well, you know, I'd spent six years down in Dunedin chasing dolphins, but surfing mm-hmm. just as much. And, and that put me on to always that, like I said, that background fear of sharks. And doing the internship showed me, okay, sharks are that X factor animal that ticks my box. That's what I want to do. Yep. And I'd worked hard through uni, getting scholarships, getting straight A's, and um, had a dream to go to Ivy League schools, you know, overseas in America, or go to Hawaii for more of a lifestyle epicness. But um, <laughs> b- bottom line was, I came home to New Zealand after going to Ocean's Research and running it for six months, mm-hmm. and it was the peak of the kind of Rob Stewart awareness campaign of shark finning. So we're talking like 2011, 2012, and... I was, you know, figuring out what to do for my PhD and it's kind of like a good thing, but I also kind of regret doing it because it put me on a different path of of my dream, which was Ivy League schools that I'd worked hard to get to. Mm -hmm. Um, But it pivoted me through passion and and responsibility to look at our own country. Mm -hmm. And when I started looking into the data at that time, New Zealand was one of the top shark fin exporters in the world. And it, it blew me away in the numbers of blue sharks being finned were, you know, up in the 200,000s. And um, it was largely going unreported. The public had no idea. These animals weren't being counted or, or quantified appropriately. And there was just this big black hole of, of shit, basically, that mm-hmm. was irresponsible. And I knew that if the New Zealand public were exposed to it and they were given justification for their opinion against it, being some science, mm-hmm. um, that we could stop this. And so I basically undertook a PhD at Auckland Uni satellite tagging blue sharks mm-hmm. to find where they go, what they do, and you know what are their critical migration paths and what countries do they go through and basically generate a story that we could empower the public opinion with so that there was nowhere for the politicians or industry to hide. It became a recipe that I learned works really really well in making change in this world because science is a very slow cog mm-hmm. and unless it's being implemented you know at the, at the end to make change what's the point of doing it so i basically found that if i did the scientific work got the data and explained it in an easy way in a stimulating way to the public you could get change through public opinion far quicker than scientifically instigated legislative decisions mm-hmm. which as we know these days Scientists are rarely listened to by politicians, it seems. So, you know, what happened basically was seemingly like a publicly funded PhD where I took out news people, I took out celebrity people, I took out people, you know, punters, school kids, whatever, out, you know, through media or in direct person to swim with sharks to see how cool they were to show what these animals do for the ocean and then contrast that with these, these stark numbers that were being killed for no benefit to the ecosystem, no benefit to the New Zealand public, no benefit to, you know, basically anyone except the top corporate ladders. And what it did was just catalyze this amazing tsunami of public support, which ended up having, you know, grandmas sponsoring $3,000 shark tags so they could name their grandkid after it. Big corporates in New Zealand sponsoring tags Mm -hmm. so that they could have competition within their offices as who's shark won. And, you know, Kelly Tarleton's displaying <laughs> it in their aquarium and online. And it just, you know, I, I took people from like Sunday and Seven Sharp and whatnot out swimming with sharks. And it was a phenomenal group thing that the New Zealand Shark Alliance, which became an entity of all the NGOs together, you know, supported. And in the end, we got a shark fin ban. And, and we got some amazing data that showed that blue sharks aren't just in New Zealand. They went all the way to the equator and back every year yet the Polynesian Islands were protecting them and we weren't. So basically in 2014, we got a shark fin ban, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredible conservation victory for my first attempt kind of that I was involved with. Absolutely. And uh, and it was the fun part, as you can see in the emotion and the, just the, the regurgitation of, of story there. Um, <laughs> that, that was a big experience for me of learning how to implement science effectively in the modern world Mm -hmm. and uh you know i'm still doing my phd now i'm finishing it this year the reason it's taken seven years or whatever is because the path i took wasn't ivy league school the path i took was in new zealand where funding 
if it's not making more money for fisheries, is a very difficult thing to get funding for. Mm -hmm. So basically, I was publicly funded. And when the media stops, the public interest generally stops. Mm -hmm. And so I had to basically start earning money. And luckily, this path of going down the media story took me into the documentary work. Mm -hmm. Built a brand, I guess, that I started generating of kind of buy Kiwis, for Kiwis. Mm -hmm. I started aligning with cool companies like Icebreaker and Mazda and a few others. So kind of commercial advertising and commercial media saved my ass. Mm -hmm. It's funded my PhD, let me build a house at the beach and and continue to live, uh, you know, an unbiased dream where I can speak for animals without the sway of industry funding. And that's been incredibly important. I think that is seriously incredible to be able to have inspired and sparked all this change. In terms of your research in blue sharks, did you say you were tagging them and is this like the basis of your PhD? Is this what you're going to submit? Yeah, and so that's the fun science I'm doing Mm -hmm. now. And it actually, to be honest, having a bit of a hiatus from it, digging into the literature is incredibly exciting. You know, you've you've gathered this, this public funding to tag all these animals. You have the responsibility to get it out there and publish and do some good with this. And mm-hmm. the findings that I got from these satellite tags were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. We supported international theory that, that blue sharks reside within major oceanic basins. So like the South Pacific is one population, North Pacific mm-hmm. is another. We had one shark that was really cool that went all the way to within a kilometer of the equator and then like did a drastic 180 and boosted really, really quickly. South. <laughs> so we wow. kind of supported that magnetic theory that they don't cross these bounds we got some of the deepest dive records ever from blue sharks that went down to about 1400 meters which was phenomenal we saw migration lengths longer than in any other blue shark tract Um, and we showed that the tagging methodology that we used was incredibly effective at getting good results because once you put an instrument on an animal you really want to make sure you're not inhibiting that animal's health or behavior because not only does it stuff up your results, but, you know, this is an animal at the end of the day, and and I'm working with it because I care about it. So it was really cool. I had a lot of mates, you know, internationally in Miami who do, you know, world-leading shark tagging stuff, and Mm -hmm. they wanted to work with blue sharks. So they said, Riley, how did you tag these animals and, and get great results that seemingly didn't inhibit the animal's health? And I love that collaboration side because too many times science comes from people who have no connection actually with the animal and perhaps haven't even seen it before. Mm-hmm. And they base their decisions on solely literature. And I feel like without a, an understanding physically of an animal, you you can't best work with that creature, which is why I'm a big ambassador of field work and mm-hmm. giving people the ability to get the skills and the experience that they can do studies practically on animals. So the PhD has been you know, fantastic. And I'm, I've done all the data analysis, and now I'm basically churning up the write-up, which is, is, is really exciting. I'm getting some fantastic stories. And what was cool is the hypothesis we had at the start mm-hmm. is coming to fruition. And you never try to aim for that in science, obviously. But the hypothesis we had was that New Zealand is a critical habitat for the South Pacific blue shark in that it is where they, they breed and they pup, yet the reason why this was so poignant is, number one, that's an obviously critical part of a population, mm-hmm. you know, where the mums copulate, breed, and where they have their babies. Mm-hmm. And yet the fisheries data in New Zealand totally dismissed that that occurs in this area. The scientific literature shows us that that can be misreporting, that can be a bias because of where they fish and location. And yet the very first season we went out, we were surrounded by tiny newborn baby pups by mums who had placental matter hanging out of them, mums mm-hmm. that had breeding scars, big mature males. And we tagged some of these animals. And we had this phenomenal Cinderella story that was so powerful from these two mature male and mature female. They went their separate ways throughout the season. The male went up to the tropics, as the boys do. Yep. Female resided around New Zealand. A year to the day later, right when they have the gestation period, when they're ready to pup and mate again, mm-hmm. both those sharks came back to literally the exact same location on the exact same day one year later. Um, So it was a phenomenal migratory story, and that showed the power of the findings we were getting. That is really cool. And how are you liaising with the different fisheries? Are you communicating some of this research? Are you in contact with them? Yeah, well, at the beginning, I worked with the Highly Migratory Species Group, which basically your tuna fisheries, 
your researchers of other highly migratory species like marlin, game fish, mm-hmm. and then the shark guys. And the majority of shark research in New Zealand comes through Niwa and DOC. And I was kind of there as an independent researcher aligned with Auckland University. And it's quite difficult, I'll just say as simply as that, in these meetings because you have, to say it simply, industry sway yeah. So to speak. You know, there's departments that are supposed to be independent, government-funded, but government's funded by fisheries at some extent, or at least lobbied by it. And you get a sense of, you know, frustration when you're an independent researcher seeing things going, why is that number like that? That is not being justified. Mm-hmm. And then you have this avalanche come down on you as, who, who are you, mate? And I remember yeah. in one meeting saying, look, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist, and we at least used to listen to scientists to try and ensure you're going to have fish to catch tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But seemingly you don't want to listen to this. And it was quite frustrating, but that was kind of what stimulated going down the public opinion path mm-hmm. was I was sick of a logical decision seemingly being made where logic and science and facts should be prioritized. But what I've done now, my, my shift is not if it a pigeonhole industry or government or scientists, but try and best encourage right maneuvers and do that through ambassadoring, you know, financial benefit, um, sustainable benefit for their profits. Mm-hmm. Voice it in that kind of way because it's not hard to do that. You just need to know how to pivot and also work with fishermen. So I'm going down on Monday to, to sit again in one of these meetings and work with a big tuna fishery in New Zealand mm-hmm. because just like dairy farmers, who I've worked with a lot as well, they're not bad people. They have passion and care about their flock mm-hmm. and about you know their grass because it's their livelihood. They need to sustain it in order to earn sustainable profits. And yep. it's, it's the bottom 5% that generally the ones we see you know, doing the bad things and, and the rest are just being let down and uh, you know, I saw a beautiful story on the news the other night of a dairy farm saying when it was raining, you know, he wasn't caring about his wife and his house. He's just caring about his cow. <laughs> and, and so what I'm trying to do working with fishermen is give them that voice because I know fishermen were nature kids, man. They, they got into fishing because they loved the exploration. They loved the fun. They wanted to professionalize what we all did as kids, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, there's some bad bad apples in the barrel, but – why not work with those ones, figure out why they're doing perhaps what they're doing and give them an out because in my experience talking to the frontline fisherman, he's just a Kiwi guy or she's just a Kiwi girl who is trying to make ends meet. And mm-hmm. corporate industry is squeezing them down more and more on their ability to make profit because it's a combination of legislation and, and you know dwindling tuna stocks, as an example. Mm-hmm. And they're just getting screwed and they're getting pushed out and then what happens is we give foreign fleets the ability to come in and fish our waters because they'll do it a hell of a lot cheaper on big scale. And that's when we get mass, you know, adverse impact on our ecosystem. So long winded answer to your question, but I think <laughs> it is key to work directly with the people on the front line, get their perspective and demand that that gets taken up through the corporate ladder because otherwise the only guys making money out of this are people overseas or corporate shareholders at the top. Mm-hmm. And all they're interested in is short-term turnover. We need to make sure Kiwi long-term priorities of sustainability of our resources is what's being prioritized. I 100% agree with that, Riley. And I don't know much about this offshore fishing with international fleets. Is there anything you want to get across just to reiterate your point about this to the listeners? Yeah, well... Like I say, I've, I've worked with a lot of, you know, grassroots Kiwi fishermen. They got mm-hmm. their boat, they go out, they catch their stuff, and stocks just started getting so impacted, especially highly migratory stocks, because between countries' national waters, or EEZs, exclusive economic zones, which are 200 nautical miles from a country's shore, mm-hmm. basically outside of that is the Wild West. It's called the High Seas. No one owns it. It's managed by the UN, but there's no police out there. So you get these huge foreign fishing fleets on big, massive vessels, and they'll just sit outside of good territories and catch anything that goes past or sit on a seamount and fish it until it's all gone. Mm-hmm. And it's fleets from the other side of the world. The Spanish fishing fleet is massive. 
Mm-hmm. Chinese fishing fleet is massive. And what we've got to look at with these highly migratory animals is international protection because mm-hmm. these animals are going through international bodies of water. And that was why, you know, like this year, a whole bunch of sharks were to be listed on CITES, yeah. which is, you know, the Convention of International Trade for Endangered Species. It's an international agreement. And these are the kind of things that we need to ensure that countries who are members of this, it's basically the UN of the, the ocean and endangered animals, yeah. you know, give support so we don't continue to enable the wild west of the high seas to diminish resources that move through them. Can you tell us, Riley, a bit more about CITES and what species were reviewed, why, and the outcome from this convention? Yeah, well, CITES, mm-hmm. it's pretty much, if you imagine it, like the UN. It's mm-hmm. a whole bunch of United Nations, 183 of them, from around the world have joined up and said, we all agree to the terms of this treaty, mm-hmm. which is basically, if you're going to trade an animal internationally, you have to prove that that trade is not going to have adverse effects on its sustainability or population. And most of these animals get on here because they're endangered. For obvious reasons, they therefore need protection. And by getting them on CITES, they have to be voted in by, I think it's a two-thirds majority. Mm-hmm. So when an animal gets on there, let's just say the panda, for as an example, <laughs> yeah. um, every member on there has to tow the industry line. And that means if you wanted to trade panda fur, for example, if you're going to do that, you have to prove that you're not adversely affecting the population. Now, these are endangered animals, so it's very hard to probably do that. And they're getting into some scrutiny with, say, rhinos, for example, Mm -hmm. where there's rhino farms now. And they're like, well, is this legit because we're sustainably harvesting them? The argument against that, I guess, is that it encourages the black market trade also because it keeps an industry alive. So... Basically, it's not bulletproof. It's more of an agreement between nations. And it's about as powerful as it gets, though, for international trade. Every year, species get put up for review. This year, there was a number of shark species, I think 18 of them, a whole bunch of other species. Mm -hmm. And all the countries who are members come down, they sit down, they they put forward their case. Um, Let's just say you're a big country that farms rhinos for horns you're probably not going to support it but most other countries would support a ban on it so Mm -hmm. what we see is that endangered animals are generally in small pockets of the world and small densities and therefore stopping money making out of trading them is generally small impact and and so rightfully so endangered animals get protected this year was a huge contrast to how CITES conventionally like lists an animal. Mm-hmm. And I say that because the Marco shark was put up for listing this year. Mm-hmm. And why this was unique is because the Marco shark is a highly migratory species. It's in every ocean in the world. The oceans, you know, cover 70% of the planet. So the numbers of these animals appear large, you know, up to the millions, perhaps. Mm-hmm. These are just spitball numbers people are throwing out. Yep. But the scale that that is distributed across is massive. So, you know, their populations have actually dropped 99.9% in the last 200 years. You know, so they're they're vastly diminished, which is why they were listed as endangered this year. And why they were different than what I said about conventional animals being listed is that even at those diminished numbers, it's still a lot of animals being caught in fisheries and their fins are valuable and their flesh is valuable. So instead of having an animal with very little industry impact being put up for protection, this animal was affecting the biggest fisheries in the world. Mm-hmm. And there are huge bycatch species in these fisheries, and they make a lot of money for them. So all of a sudden, instead of industries, let's just say fisheries or coal mines or whatever, going, yeah, cool, we don't care about the panda being protected, go ahead. Mm-hmm. You had... You had big countries going, whoa, 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 we're going to have to do a lot of change and lose a lot of money if we agree to this. So what was really interesting in this vote was that you saw the big player countries that seemingly are your developed, let's do the right thing for the world countries 
going against it. And we're seeing a very similar example of climate change. So your US, your China's, your Japan's, and your Australia's, your New Zealand voted against it. And that caught the world quite off guard that New Zealand voted against it. It blew me away. And it blew the world away because New Zealand is like such a pro-conservation. And ironically, it was like, I'm pretty sure it was Conservation Week. A Conservation Week came up the following week. Yeah. And what was so weird is that our Department of Conservation, who you know represents New Zealand's conservation protocol, was saying, "Look, well, there's all these animals that have been listed as endangered. You know, there's there's all these issues we're having. We're protecting all these animals. It's all kiwis and kaka and birds and and generally, you know, land-based animals, mm-hmm. and generally the small pocket animals that don't affect industry. Look at Maui's dolphin. It's been going on for 25 years. I mean, Steve Dawson, Liz Luton, my supervisor, from like 12 years ago, yeah. who've dedicated their life to these animals, yeah. trying to get them protection, and we still haven't got adequate protection. Why? Because it's offsetting money from commercial fisheries. Mm-hmm. And that was an example of this tough change. And so what I was incredibly disappointed in is our Department of Conservation had an opportunity to say, let's conserve an endangered animal. And they said no. And their reasoning to say no was juvenile is the simplest way to say it in an in mm-hmm. academic sense. It was that there's there's probably millions of them across the world and therefore, we don't see any need for them to be protected. I've explained earlier that this is exactly why CITES exists, because it needs to cover international trade. And the millions of them that they're talking about is pulled out of a hat and is spread across you know, the entire earth. Mm-hmm. And science, good science, has shown huge declines in these animals. And what really showed the, the logic of them saying no to it was – the head of Doc's communication said, and this is really important, he said, mm-hmm. why would we say yes to this agreement, to CITES, when our own quota management system offers just as good a protection for this species? To me, that is in itself totally contradictory. Mm-hmm. If quota management system gives them all this protection and it's the same as CITES, well, then why would you say no to CITES? Surely you would just go, yeah, cool, it's exactly the same, so what difference is it going to make? Mm-hmm. Of course we'll say yes. So it was incredibly frustrating, but what was great was that the majority of the world, 72% of it, said mm-hmm. this is black and white, this animal needs protection, or we're going to lose it. Yeah. And it was those countries that don't earn millions of dollars a year each from killing them, mm-hmm. and they did the right thing. And what's sad about that is the countries that said no look poor in their conservation or management of endangered animals. Yeah. And what I'm sick of, especially in New Zealand, is that we preach so much about conservation, yet look at what we're conserving in the oceans mm. compared to land, and it's incredibly poor. Mm-hmm. We have the most endangered seabirds in the world. We have the smallest, most endangered dolphin in the world. We have, you know, an endangered marker shark that we didn't offer protection. And I know from being a scientist that looks into the fishery data that it's poor, it's underrepresented, it's misreported. And those facts are acknowledged by the fisheries themselves in their documents. And it's that kind of information that I try to bring to the public's eye so that public opinion can better pressure to get protection for these animals that are out of sight and out of mind. So, Riley, what now? Like, with the countries voting this uh, CITES bill in, are, like, the countries that rejected this, are they obliged to stop trade with this? Where are we at now with this situation? Yeah, um, great question. You know, that comes down to basically kind of like these climate agreements, you know. Mm -hmm. If you want to be American, you don't want to do it, you pull out. But... it looks really bad if you pull out, as we've seen with that example. Yep. New Zealand's not going to pull out of society, so that's the irony of this. New Zealand said no to it, mm-hmm. but they're going to have to oblige by society's rules now anyway. So, look, it's a win. It's just disappointing that Doc represented New Zealand and New Zealanders mm-hmm. with an opinion that I believe 
no New Zealander would support. And I've learned not to say, shame on you, Doc. I've learned to say, Doc, look at this, understand the New Zealand public opinion, likely, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we'll give you a second chance. Like, come out and say, look, actually, we're going to do this and come back stronger than what a simple yes would have been. Yeah. And that's where I try and work. Where to next? I'm trying to work with the industry to say, let's not only work with CITES and just not and, and trade this animal restrictively. Let's mm-hmm. ban trade on the Marco shark. The Marco shark's name comes from Maori language. We've seen how much passion we put on that with the Manuka honey trademark recently. Yeah. And, you know, let's be the Kiwis that we had a reputation for. And it's dwindled. And it's dwindled not because the New Zealand public wants it to it's dwindled because we've got more capitalistic in our country's operations mm-hmm. so let's let's start to turn those things back let's give maui's dolphin the protection it should have let's yeah. give market sharks more protection it should have and the way you do that is offset the loss of financial income from protecting it with the financial benefit of protecting it we use the simple example the market shark we call it the billion dollar shark why because the market shark is an apex predator of the Pelagic Ocean, maintains the health and sustainability of a $42 billion tuna fishery mm-hmm. on a global scale. You say that in a corporate fisheries meeting, people will listen to you. Or you offset it with tourism, like with Maui's dolphin. That's where to next. And I think the biggest way to do that is work with the frontline fishermen because that's who the lobbied politicians say it's affecting, and they try and pull this thing that we're going to ruin people's lives, Kiwis' lives. Mm-hmm. Go talk to those fishermen sometimes, and you'll see. <laughs> Last thing he wants to be doing is catching Maui's dolphins. So give them an alternative. Last thing the shark fishermen, the tuna fishermen want to do is fin sharks. Give them a way out. And what I'm working on at the moment is an example with part-time rangers who give some of their profits to sustainable measures with rhinos, elephants, and now sharks is, you know, working with the fishermen to make it more affordable to release sharks. And it, it's a simple campaign. It's a quality campaign. And basically it enables the fisherman to do his job at less expense while maintaining the sustainability of the ecosystem he relies on. So that's that progressive movement. Work with the industries. Back your work with science and fact and, and empower it with public opinion. In doing those things, you take away the power that we've given to corporations and politicians who somewhat ancestrally forget that they work for us. I love that progressive action you're talking about, Riley, and the alternative. So you're saying with these offsets, are these basically just subsidies you're referring to to give to fishermen and things like that if you, say, want a protected area or just for them to, to offset what they're losing? Yeah, well, there's various ways you can obviously do conservation, mm-hmm. but you got to look realistically at what you're up against, the hurdles that you're facing, and look at how you can most efficiently make change. So if I said to the fishing industry, you can't catch marker sharks, that's a big fight. And you might get there one day when they're super, you know, they're already endangered, but it's why not implement things that are more implementable at a lesser cost that just encourage the release of these animals or, Mm -hmm. you know, reduce the industry of those animals, cut the demand for those animals, you know, work at it from a different angle and you find you get much more progression. An example being the shark fin ban that we got in New Zealand and it surprises a lot of people didn't actually ban cutting fins off sharks and selling shark fins. What it did was put a speed bump in the way that made it unaffordable for the fishermen to do it. And my explanation to that is you could still sell a blue shark's fins. You just had to bring the whole body back with you, either naturally attached to its fins or them in a bag together. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of weird, but the point being, blue shark bodies are worth nothing, basically. Yep. And the fisherman doesn't want to fill his hold with them when he's trying to catch valuable tuna. Yep. So basically, he put a speed bump at the road that dropped you know, the mortality of blue sharks overnight by 90%. So part-time rangers, you know, as an example... These guys are giving 10% of their profits from a particular can of beverage, and we use that to subsidize the cost of hooks so that it's more affordable for a fisherman to let a shark go. Mm-hmm. Because previously, it will cost them a dollar to cut that shark free, 
and he's losing a dollar. And when you're catching hundreds of thousands of these a year, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you then go, shit, that $1 I could get for that shark's fin or flesh or whatever actually offsets that cost. So let's do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you take away that expense and you start going, well, like <laughs> the fisherman, the last thing he wants to do is bring a shark that's thrashing around onto his boat. Yeah, yeah. So it encourages them just to let it go. These, I think, are you know logical, implementable things that we can do to work with industry to encourage positive change. These part-time rangers, I'm pretty sure I had a bevy from one of them a friend gave me a couple of weeks ago. Is it literally just like a can of beer with a shark on it? Yeah, they're RTDs, which gets you a bit of a twist in your face to start with, but they're like <laughs> that gourmet drink that you could never make yourself with high-quality Gin, uh, vodka, or white rum. Yeah, there's the three different beverages with, you know, just real lemon or lime, and then just soda water. So it's uh, one's a rhino one that helps rhinos, one's an elephant one that helps elephants. And uh, when the boys wanted to set up a shark one, they teamed up with me, which was, which was awesome. Um, you know, Kiwi company helping out Kiwi animals, and and then taking that to the international stage because we obviously don't have elephants or rhinos here, <laughs> but um. <laughs> The policy is implementable change. And look, I know you're down at Dunedin, and um, mm-hmm. there was a thing in the critic, I think, about like, stating <laughs> them. And it's quite sad, really. And New Zealand's just classic for it. The, t- the whole toll poppy thing, we know that. Yeah, yeah. Someone's trying to do something, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll try and slay them down. And it's understandable because so many people have exploited, you know, the B Corp thing or trying to give profits to things. And I've seen plenty of people do it. But that's why you team up people with a credible background and track record of doing the right thing for the right reasons. I can guarantee that <laughs> the money that these guys are donating is going to some amazing causes. And this campaign, I think I just pre-launched it, so I might get slapped on the wrist for it. But basically, <laughs> this summer, we're going to see a whole bunch of it. And um, the shark one is tangibly helping out a shark every time you buy a box of these great white shark cans. And yeah. And this is just the first campaign. I mean, these things take time, and that's why... You know, it's taken a couple of months to launch this because I'm literally going down to sit in an industry meeting on Monday to see how best implement this. Mm-hmm. I'm not just pointing the finger at an industry and saying, screw you and getting people to give me money so I can fly around the world and pick up some plastic or something, you know, <laughs> like, although, although that's obviously a good thing to do, but not fly <laughs> around the world to do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, man, to be honest, I think it's a great initiative by them and it's a pretty cool idea. I want to take a dive, Riley, and talk a bit about some of the encounters that you've had underwater with sharks. I'm sure a lot of the listeners want to hear some of your stories, and I wanted to ask, first up, if you have any rules you obey to safely dive with sharks, and if you could just talk us through some of the steps. Yeah, I think you might need to put this at the upfront teaser so people could withstand all that bureaucracy we just talked about and this is the juice part. Um, it's kind of funny this. It's like asking a businessman to give you all over his all, give over all his IP. But um, I think it's um, the reason I get scared of telling the golden rules is because I don't want someone with an experience to go try it. Um, yeah, yeah, so exactly. Use at your own discretion. Don't ever try this unless you've got experience. But um, the experiences I've, I've had have largely been, you know, really enjoyable and we're in control, so to speak, because I put the time in, you know, it was what, 2005, I think, or something, when I went to Oceans Research. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I've continued to work with people who have been in this industry for a long time. And they're the best people you want to work with, you know, the ones who still have their fingers and toes that haven't been bit yet. And, <laughs> you know, basically have survived adverse encounters because of respect. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a big thing that gets lost in this Instagram world is a lot of guys I see and girls, you know, they want the flashy stuff. So they're grabbing sharks and doing all this kind of weird shit. And I just don't agree with that. And I mainly do that because I work with probably the, the gnarly of shark species. There is the maker shark. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can guarantee you can't start doing that kind of stuff with them. So <laughs> what I've learned basically in a nutshell is, Every single shark species has a very different way of communicating. Yep. And it's all based on body language, but it is so subtle and so different between not only the species but also individuals that unless you put the time in in a respectable way, you're going to make a mistake. And you're going to walk into the South Auckland pub and, and see Jake the Mus and roll your eyes the wrong way and go, holy shit, it's coming at me now. Yeah. You know, so 
I've had very few Jake the Mus encounters because I've always known how to diffuse a situation. And I've only done that through baby steps. Mm-hmm. But the three golden rules I have basically is the number one thing with a shark in order to engage with it is eye contact. The number two, which is related directly to that, is clear water. Mm-hmm. And the number three is to be able to be calm, and, and that's directly related to the first two. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see the shit that's around you. And if you start pushing the boundaries on any of those, you're encouraging a shark to um, make a mistake. And their behavior gets a lot more agitated and a lot more risky when those three rules start breaking down. So, you know, as an example, I was doing a shoot with Ronda Rousey and they wanted to put her in the water in green water with the fastest shark in the world to make a shark. And I was just like, no, that's an irresponsible thing to do just because you want to make TV. So this is how we're going to do it. And the chances of getting a shark in this water may be less, but I'm not going to take the risk. And that's when you find people, you've got to maintain those um, balances of, of respect for a wild animal. But even when you do do that, I've had two, only two sketchy encounters in my life. Mm-hmm. One was entirely my mistake, and one was, luckily, I reacted to intuition and, and a gut feeling. So the first one, I talk about eye contact. Yep. We're filming an Nat Geo show off Mare Island in New Zealand. We've got the biggest maker shark I've ever seen. It's about a 14-foot maker shark, which is just a fucking beast, man. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a great white on crack. And, <laughs> and they're not cautious. They're not shy about chopping shit up. But this one had been whacked in the face by a fisherman or someone. It had a big cut out of its face. And so mm. it was quite passive. And we're in the shark cage. We're filming it with this big chumsicle. And it was really, really shy. We go to get out of the cage at the end. And it's real choppy. And I'd already told the crew... When I'm getting out of the cage, never take your eyes off behind me because I'm turning my back. I'm breaking the number one rule. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the cameraman gets out of the cage, and I'm sitting there trying to hold the boat off, my head getting chopped off in this chop. Yeah. And I turn around, and the cage is tipped down. My whole body's exposed to the open water, and the, the belly of this 14-foot marker shark is going past my face. Oh, man. And, and I look up, and the camera crew is filming themselves with the reactions of how amazing the shark was. And I got out and just fucking spat the dummy because <laughs> within the three seconds that I had turned my eyes away, that shark that was so cautious never came close to us at all when we were looking at it, yeah. came in and it decided whether or not to do something with me. Mm-hmm. And it's that lack of, like I said before, it's not control, but it's like, you know, having some control of what's going on. Shit, man, that's a scary feeling to have. Yeah. And you know, so that that's the only time I've ever made that mistake. And I saw how quickly a wild animal will capitalize on that. Yeah. Um, but luckily, we're smart enough and it didn't follow through. The other one I had was just a reminder that, shit, Riley, you're walking into the lion's den sometimes and yeah. just really acknowledge that. And I started pushing the boundaries off Mare Island, going out deeper water, trying to find these bigger maker sharks. Yep. We're actually filming content for the CITES show uh, with Sean Heinrichs, who's an amazing international conservationist. Mm-hmm. And um, we're just getting a bigger shark every hour, bigger shark every hour, replacing the smaller one. And we ended up with this 14-footer that was just beautiful. She was stunning, calm, cool, mm-hmm. crystal clear water. We're having a great time for about an hour. And I'm like, cool, Sean, let's get out. He's like, why would we get out? It's perfect. I was like, that's why. (laughs) Like, where can this go other than somewhere worse? And I just had this gut feeling. And we get back to the engines and we turn around and there's an even bigger Mako coming up full speed from below this other Mako. And this is what they do to hunt, to kill something, to get rid of competition. And it came up and we didn't even want to watch. We just turned out a reaction, jumped off the boat turn around there's just atomic bomb of water went off oh my and god that shark on the surface has receptors lateral lines you know sound vibration sensors all these things that it would have detected that shark got out of the way and that was the atomic bomb of water yeah. but one minute earlier we were out there and we have none of that and yeah. so it was a stark reminder of where we were and it kind of gave me a reset which i think is incredibly valuable so you don't end up like the grizzly man just being reminded to take a step back, perhaps, you know, use a shark cage until we learn what's going on in the Jurassic Park area you haven't been before. Yeah, you know, yeah. 
it, it's okay to be risk averse, especially if you want to be here later. And at the end of the day, like shark man gets eaten by a shark, it's only going to really affect the shark's yeah, exactly. perspective. You know, like yeah. it's going to lose. People are just yeah. going to laugh at me, you know? Yeah. Are mako sharks your favorite species to dive with? Is that why you do a lot of free diving with them? Or is it because you're just really trying to push for the content and stuff like that on all your campaigns uh, recently? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really, to be honest, by kind of default. By, yeah. you know, by working with blue sharks, mako sharks inhabit the exact same niche. And when you get blue sharks, you get mako sharks. And, yeah. and so I just inevitably got a lot of access to mako sharks. And there's not many places in the world that have them or, you know, where people get access to them because they're out in the open ocean. Mm-hmm. But New Zealand's one of the best, and it just kind of evolved from there. But they are also, you know, globally acknowledged by the best shark guys in the world that they're the most intense shark to swim with. Mm-hmm. You know, not only are they the fastest, but they've just got a demeanor that, uh, you know, is a no bullshit, no caution kind of demeanor, which is quite rare in the shark world, believe it or not. Um, I want to talk about this fear you have of sharks. From my understanding and what you were saying before, that you were quite square to them, how did you overcome your fear of sharks? Was it just swimming with sharks and, and seeing them underwater for what they are? And is there any recommendation for others that have this fear of them? It's a great question because I have to split it into two different worlds. Mm-hmm. I was fearful of sharks as a surfer. Because I'm bobbing on the surface, not knowing what's under me. It's the boogeyman scenario. <laughs> and so I wanted, to, I wanted to figure out what the boogeyman was, and I did. And that took me into their world. I got under the bed with it and, and started growing down, so to speak. And, yeah. and I learned that, wow, like the perspective of Jaws and man-eating and blah, blah is, is you know, all bullshit. And, and they're actually a really cool animal, and this is awesome. And that's the fear to fascination aspect. That's yeah. all, you know, on my license plate and what I would preach. But I'm a realist. And I always like to bring it back to relatable perspective because not everyone's had that transition. Anyone I know who's gone and learned to swim with sharks with professionals, 100% has converted to that fascination aspect. But not everyone has done that. And so I got to bring it back to the fact, and it is a fact, that when I go surfing, to be honest, I'm probably more fearful of sharks now when I'm surfing than I was before because i know so much more about what i'm doing wrong think of those three rules i just said you know and when you're a surfer you literally are breaking them to the 10th degree like the maximum (laughs) degree you could break them and you're adding a whole bunch more in there you know you're in murky water dusk and dawn river mouths you got an elevated heart rate you're splashing you're looking like a seal you're acting like a seal but a worse (laughs) seal you're doing you're doing all this shit but what it does and i say to people is fear is a totally natural instinct and it's beneficial and we should embrace fear. Mm-hmm. It's how you react to that fear. And if you react like I hate sharks and I want them dead, like the old mentality, good sharks are dead sharks. If you react to fear like that, you're naive, ignorant, and you know, you shouldn't be in the wild environment to be frank. You got no respect. Yeah. But if you react to that fear with respect, you react to it and acknowledge it, it's the cold to the mountain air or the ground of the skydiver. You know, it's that harsh reality of a wild environment that makes it thrilling. You can then accept it or decline it. And when I was in Mossel Bay, I stopped surfing in South African Oceans Research. I was like, I'm not going to surf here, even though it's pumping, because I don't want to take that level of risk. Because every day I was out there looking at Great Whites a kilometer from where I had just been surfing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, in New Zealand, we got a healthy ecosystem. We got a shitload of sharks, but like they all do their job and just eat fish and seals. You know, we don't usually have adverse encounters. And to be honest, that's across the world. Mm -hmm. So I say to people, and this is the point about being relatable, Mm -hmm. like fear is fine. Embrace the fear. Just use some knowledge and some facts so you ensure how you react to that fear is appropriate. Riley, I want to ask you, because you are quite an advocate for sharks and you do a lot of activism stuff, I'm curious, how do you balance this with your science how do you balance the two between being a scientist on one hand and then being an activist in the other? And what I'm trying to ask is, do you believe that your scientific integrity has been questioned given given the activism stuff that you're doing? And if so, how do you negotiate that? Yeah, 
incredibly good question, incredibly complex. And um, I've been through every avenue of what you just said. You know, it's kind of the key point of my TED Talk, trying to address that. And I think it's pretty important, number one, I would never call myself an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I've got an issue with activism or activists. It's more that that's not my role. That's not what I decided to do. Mm-hmm. I'm a scientist and just happened to use modern media to communicate pure science. And this was an example when I went to the Western Australia shark cull. There was a crew of us there, and then there was a sea shepherd boat. And the sea shepherd guy said, bro, do you want to jump on here and come out with us? And I was like, um, I love what sea shepherd does. I got sea shepherd t-shirts. Like, they're awesome. But it will dilute. What I'm trying to do is my role being a scientist. Yep. So, like, you guys do the activism boat there. I'll be the scientist here. And there's two players now in the game, which looks better than one. I think it's important to identify roles because my role isn't to stand with a sign and point a finger, perhaps. That has a powerful impact, though, and activism is needed in places. My role is then to give activists or the public the facts, the knowledge, the justification to the activism. And the way I've done that is by using modern media. That is where the skepticism from the scientific community comes from. What we see now, and this is the full circle, which is nice, because I'm seeing at a university now happening, mm-hmm. they are trying to teach scientists how to better communicate with media. Yeah. And I actually speak quite often at university to supervisors, to professors, to postgrads, to teach them how to better utilize modern media to communicate science. Because, mm-hmm. to be frank, most scientists are, you know, I'm a nerd. Like, we're nerds. And, <laughs> but, you know, quite often nerds didn't do public speaking. They weren't popular or whatever and, mm-hmm. and aren't confident to put themselves out there. Yep. And that's why they're great scientists because they're not out, you know, doing the stupid shit that the jock might be doing. But <laughs> bottom line is um, <laughs> I say to most of my scientific friends when they question, oh, well, look, Riley, you can talk and you can do this. I'm like, mate, you're a scientist. You learn a lot of complex skills. Mm-hmm. You can learn how to publicly speak. You know, you can learn how to use Instagram. You can learn how to do this. The key point out of this question and recipe, though, is if you're going to call yourself a scientist, you've got to walk the walk. Mm-hmm. And that means you've got to do science. You've got to publish it. And if you're going to communicate it in unconventional terms, being media, mm-hmm. you need to learn how to control it. And that is the big point where scientists have avoided media historically. But I think it's a weak one. But I made the mistake. First time I went on the news, it was the shark attack in Murawai. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had helicopter footage of it. It was a great white swimming. And they said, Riley, can you comment on this? I said, yes, but do not cut what I say to make it suit you. Oh, and then man. I said, you know, it was not live. And I said, this is a great white shark, but it's not the great white shark that attacked him because of blah, blah, blah. They cut it. Riley Elliott, shark scientist, says, quote me, vision of me. This is a great white. And they cut to, and it's the shark that attacked you know, blah. And it was just like, wow, there is no loyalty in media. And the quicker Mm. you learn that, the more you can control it. And I started just doing live media. And then with social media, you control it. So the point being, if you're going to communicate through unconventional terms, you need to maintain your credibility. If you're going to be a scientist, by ensuring that what you write is factual, justified, objective, and, you know, consistent with what would be peer reviewed process. And I think we're seeing more of that being accepted and and we're having to do it because it's the biggest form of communication in the world. And I say to scientists, peer-reviewed publication, I'm not saying don't do that. We need that. Mm. But I'm saying if what you do isn't being implemented to make the world a better place, then what's the point of doing it? So whatever it is as a scientist you're doing, look at the end goal. Is it just sitting in a journal that four of your colleagues read? Or is it making the world a better place? Because, you know, we're all human. We're all empathetic. At the end of the day, that's all that really matters, surely. And, Riley, is there any tips or any key points you'd give to young scientists listening on the podcast that do wish to advocate but, I guess, are just worried as well about their own scientific integrity being questioned? I don't think you can worry about stuff like that. In this world, you can't worry about people's opinions of of you if what you were doing is justified, factual, and for good reason. There's always going to be haters. There's always going to be jealousy. There's always going to be critics. But 
like I say, look forward, not sideways. Focus on what you're doing. Is it for non-selfish means? Is it helping something out? And if so, show that vulnerability that you feel for it and other people will gravitate towards it. You know, people are lacking compassion and emotion these days. People want to connect with things that, that mean something, make them feel good. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going to question someone's credibility when they're proposing something that ticks all those boxes, that person needs to take a look at themselves. You know, most of the critique you have when you do something good is coming from, you know, industries that are doing bad stuff and making money off of it. And unless we stand up and do these things, change isn't going to happen. But key thing is you've you got to be justified and have the track record of information that's going to give you a strong position because – People's failure in media to not do that is what scares people off because people think, oh, you, you can't operate in that spectrum. But I've had the Western Australia shark cull get stopped. We had shark finning get stopped mm-hmm. and several other good conservation victories. And my part that I played in that was using this recipe, and I, I found it very, very effective. At the end of the day, what is your ultimate goal? ultimately I do what I do because I'm a nature kid that just never lost the passion for it. Mm -hmm. And my father always told me, never chase the money, never chase success, figure out what your passion is because you love it. You'll get good at it without struggle and, and success will follow. And for me, all I want to do is go exploring and, and basically put it bluntly, play with animals and learn about them. And the adult version of that is to share that with the world. Not everyone has the ability or the, or the lust to go out way into the middle of the ocean, put blood and guts in the water and jump up and down when a huge shark turns up. <laughs> but I do that for the passion of sharing the factual knowledge I know about that animal and the ecosystem around it with the public. And the shark is just my pinup boy. You know, I speak from school groups to corporates, like I said, to, to academics, to whatever. Mm-hmm. And I always use the shark as the draw card, but it's the holistic marine environment that I'm truly passionate about communicating. It's not because I don't like the land. I do a lot of snowboarding, hiking, and trout fishing and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's because it's the main environment that this world relies on, and yet it's the main environment that we're so disconnected from. So it's get that Jacques Cousteau person back out there, kind of back there. Mm -hmm. That's my passion, and if I can empower people younger than me, older than me, whatever, who also have a passion to do that, then that's my moral grounding. That's my ticking the box of I've made the world a better place. And that's why I want to try and, you know, set something up, like from what I learned in Oceans Research in New Zealand, because every day I get an email from someone from somewhere around the world saying, how do I get experience? And it's a very difficult thing, especially with sharks, but without it, the university won't let you do a study because they think you're going to get bit. You know, it's too risk averse. So, you know, that's my goal is, is I want to basically stimulating visual imagery to communicate science to the public to better emotionally re-engage our communities with nature. That's my goal. Awesome. I think, Riley, from... What you were saying before, you have inspired lots of young people, lots of young Kiwis, and frankly, just people around the world. You've written a book entitled Shark Man. You've given a TED Talk. You're incredible with putting yourself out there, and I just want to say thanks. I think that it's awesome. I greatly appreciate that, mate. No worries. For my final question, and this is a question I ask everyone, if you could get one message out to the world about sharks and just the ocean in general, what would that be? Go play in nature more. If you're a parent, you know, get your kid to climb a tree again. Go mm-hmm. make a hut. You know, do the things we used to do because we're getting too emotionally disconnected with nature. Mm-hmm. And um, if I've done one thing, I hope it's that I've shown that you can do that even with the scariest most boogeyman fearful thing we have and that is the shark i love that and riley i just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show inspiring us all and sharing all the stuff about makos your dives with them and also everything that's happened recently with their conservation 
Oh, that's great, mate. And we got Shark Week coming up not too far away, and I got a great documentary in there, and it's kind of close to New Zealand, but um, yep. it's one to watch. Awesome. Um, so, so, so make sure you check that out. But um, thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Love the podcast. I'll share this and, and listen to all the future episodes because you're getting some quality people on here. It was great. And chums, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this extra long episode. I personally thought it was great to hear about the recent listing of Marco Sharks on CITES, a win for the Sharks, and also what this means, as well as Riley's research, conservation projects, and the importance of reaching out as a scientist outside of just the publication world. If you're interested in some of Riley's TV production work, research and what he gets up to i'll be sharing everything online so make sure to check out the murky waters podcast there'll be some cool freediving photos of riley with the sharks he was talking about you can find the podcast on instagram facebook and twitter simply search for the murky waters podcast this podcast is created by michael helsinger but it wouldn't happen without your support, so thank you for listening today. Please share the podcast around and subscribe, and if you have any questions, feel free to send me a message, and if you would like, leave a review. It would be great to hear what you thought about this episode and the previous ones as well. I want to say to everyone that this is the last episode for the first season of this series. I'll be having a couple of bonus episodes, one about smart drum lines, and also a live recording at a shark conference I recently attended this year. So keep an eye out for that. So I want to say first and foremost, thank you so much to Otago Access Radio or FM for everything you guys have done so far. You're all legends, and especially Dummy for all his hard work. I also want to thank everyone else who helped get this podcast kickstarted and has helped along the way as well. Finally, I'd like to say a thank you to Riley Elliott, our exceptional guest today. Thanks, Riley, for coming on the show, sharing your knowledge and inspiring us all. Take care, people, of both yourselves and the planet, and I'll see you next episode. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.